Hello there, everyone. My name's Nick Cohen. I'm a columnist on The Observer and write for far too many other publications. And welcome to The Bunker. This is The Bunker's special series to get you through lockdown, where I talk to authors of interesting, relevant, important books. My promise I've always made to you is I'll never recommend a book that's just a PhD thesis dressed up for publication, but they're actually well-written and readable, as well as being important and interesting. And in that vein, I am delighted to welcome Jason Brennan, a professor of economics, ethics and public policy at Georgetown University in the US, and has written uh, Against Democracy, one of many books, I should add, that have been out in the past few years questioning basic assumptions, or if you like, uh, perhaps rather naive and romantic assumptions about democracy. Welcome, Jason. Hi, thanks very much for having me here. It's our pleasure. I mean, a simple question to start off with. Why are you and why should we be against democracy? You know, despite the name of the book, which is deliberately provocative, and we we uh, quite explicitly chose that against other titles in part to sell copies of the book, I'm not really against democracy overall. I think of democracy the way I think of the uh, heavy metal band Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden's a wonderful heavy metal band, but they have some serious flaws in, here and there. And a lot of their albums in the 1990s were kind of poor. Democracy's like that as well. It's the best system that we've come up with so far. But nevertheless, it has diagnosable, well-known, systematic flaws that are persistent. And it's time to start considering whether it's possible to amend those flaws or to uh, replace the system with something that might work better. You start with, and this is not remotely controversial, by the way, political scientists have found this for generations, just the extraordinary level of ignorance about politics most people who have a vote in an election carry with them. Absolutely. Uh, This has been a persistent finding really since 1958, when this band of research was started. In almost any country that we have data about what voters know, we find that the the average the, the average voter, the typical voter, the voter right in the middle of the spectrum has basically no knowledge about politics. They don't know any of the relevant social indicators. They typically don't know who represents them in the legislature. They typically don't know which party controls the legislature. What you often find is that they'll usually know the identity of the chief executive and not much else. They remember maybe about six months of the past economic performance, but they don't have any real ability to discern who is responsible for that. And so even if they blame or reward leaders for that, it's a little bit like kicking or rewarding your dog because you had a bad traffic on the way home from work. Maybe that metaphor doesn't work for us anymore because none of us drive anymore. My favorite finding in the spectacularly ignorant stake, I'm not sure if it came from your book or from a book called Democracy for Realists, was when German voters were asked to identify the party Der Link and say, well, it was a left or right wing party. 50% didn't know, even though Der Link in German means the left. Yeah, that's right. That's for making a Bartels uh, democracy for realists. And you find examples of this even with like voters. Uh, there's a trick that this TV show talk show host in the United States likes to play, but there's real research behind it showing that this is a persistent trick. You can go up to voters who say that they're committed members of their party and lie to them and give them a platform and say, this is the platform of your party. What do you think of it? And they'll say, oh, it's wonderful, but it's actually the platform of the rival party. You can give them the platform of the rival party and lie to them and say, this is the platform of your party. What do you think of it? And they'll defend it on the spot. Uh, If you ask them to identify what their party actually stands for, the overwhelming majority of voters aren't actually able to identify that. And so a better way of putting it, which is what Aiken and Bartel say in that Democracy for Realist book, is that 
for most people, political affiliation is not about policy. It's more like sports fandom. It's kind of like choosing your football team and rooting for that team. Whereas for a small percentage of people, maybe about 10%, you find that the reason they vote for a party is because of genuine ideological affiliation or because they actually support the policies of that party. And that's really troubling because it means that we're when we're when we're voting, we're not really voting because we want that person to be the leader and to do the thing they're promising. It's more like, and this seems really controversial, but it's what the research says. I'm voting this way because I want to show my friends that I'm one of them. You know, my friends, we're my friends, we're all Labor Party members because that's what it takes to be proper college professors. To show you're a true college professor means you vote Labor. Well, well, Jason, that takes me on to your second point: is even when even people who aren't uninterested ignorance about politics. They have a lot of knowledge of, of politics. They're people like me. They're people like, I, I guess, most people listening to this program. But that doesn't make them intelligent voters. It just means that they are highly partisan. They are, in your analogy, football fans. Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about the typical sports hooligan, they might be able to recall a number of facts about various games and so on, but they're also incredibly biased in how they process information. You know, if a call uh, penalty comes against your team, you think that the referees were blind and unfair. And if it goes against the other team, you think it was fair. Here, you're taking information and processing in a way that flatters your pre-existing ideology or flatters what you'd like to believe. And the evidence shows there's a tremendous amount of work in political psychology showing that this is what most people do with politics. No matter what evidence you give them, they will take it as confirming what they already like to believe. To the point, actually, where one of my favorite studies was this thing done by a guy named Dan Cahan, uh, a professor at the law school at Yale University, where he would give people a math problem and then figure out who's good at solving the problem and who wasn't. He would give them then the people who were actually able to solve the problem. He'd give them the exact same math problem, but make it about gun control. He would say in the study, this is a hypothetical study. It's not real. I'm making up the numbers. I just want you to assess if this data were real data, what would it say? And what he finds is that everyone reads the data as flattering whatever it is they believe about gun control. Uh, And so this is like, even though you're telling them it's fake, they still engage in motivated reasoning. Why is this bad? I mean, I can see why it's bad from the point of view of people's romantic idea of democracy, who think that what happens is uh, rational voters look at the issues, know the issues, the majority put their men and women in power to follow their agenda. That That isn't true. Is there evidence it produces bad government? Yeah, great. So you already mentioned one point, which is that the the typical justification of democracy is something like we the people vote. And in some way, the electoral system forces representatives to cater to our interests. We know it's good for us. They want to win power. In order to win power, they have to propose things that are good for us. It turns out that's not true because we're not voting on the basis of ideology and we're not informed. We're ignorant and we're irrational. So that's just not a check. That's already devastating because it disconnects democracy and leaders from us. It doesn't make them respond to our interests as much as we would like. And Jason, I shouldn't have just passed over that because it is a big point. It it attacks the the moral core, if you like, the founding myth of democracy as well. It's a system that if you say, how do you justify this system? The central justification that that voters get policies they want from people they vote for who represent their interests starts crumbling. Yeah, absolutely. And really, we can only say that maybe about 10% of voters are doing something like that. And even they, as you pointed out earlier, are largely partisan and they're more trying to impress their friends. 
you know, in a way, like the ship of state matters. It matters how it is steered. And even though we might be ignorant and irrational, nevertheless, politicians respond to the way that we vote. They want to win power and they have to respond to the system that they have. If we're using politics and our votes in irrational and ignorant ways, then we're going to end up supporting leaders who can harm us. And a nice example of this, I know this is controversial among many, but Brexit's actually a very nice test case. And one reason why I put it in the expanded paperback edition, uh, the polling firm Ipsos Mori collected a lot of data on Brexit voters, uh, which allows us to do some analysis. And one of the things they did was poll voters not only about who they are demographically, but about what they knew about facts that might be relevant to that decision. So for example, they asked people in the UK, what percent of the UK is made up of immigrants from the EU? How much foreign investment comes from China? How much foreign investment comes from the European Union? How much money is being transferred from the UK to the EU uh, for various kinds of welfare programs? It turned out that both leave and remain voters overwhelmingly got these answers wrong. They overestimated the negative facts and they underestimated the positive facts. So for instance, Uh, UK voters were estimating that something like 50% of foreign investment was coming from China when it was really only about 1%. Uh, So they were just, they were sometimes off by factors of 400. However, the leave voters were much farther away from the truth than the remain voters. And when we have this data, what we can do then is look at how, you know, we can isolate the effect of demographics like income and where you live in the UK and so on, um, because that has an effect in your vote. We can isolate that and remove the effect and look simply at the effect of information on how people vote. And so because of Ipsomori, we, Ipsomori, we can confidently say that if I had waved a magic wand on the morning of the Brexit vote and made everyone fully informed about the facts that they were polled on this thing, they would have voted to remain rather than to leave. So that's that's a world changing event for the UK. Um, it will greatly affect like what it is to live in the UK over the next 50 years. But it appears to be done entirely on the basis of ignorance. I gave up alcohol a few years ago. And about the only pleasure left to me now is sitting there watching while other people get very drunk. And I watched uh, an ex-Mandarin, an ex-senior civil servant get drunker and drunker after the Brexit vote until he finally exploded you know, people in this country say we've got an establishment and an elite. It's utter bollocks. If we had a proper ruling class, they would never have allowed Brexit to happen. They would have just said, no, it's too stupid, it's too damaging. Boom, we would have stopped it. And because we don't have one, it all goes ahead. Now, you are proposing in this book, uh, along with, uh, I should say again, Jason, there are a lot of philosophers and political theorists, political scientists thinking on these lines of different systems to democracy. It's not just you, you know, sitting in Georgetown, getting more and more exasperated with American voters. There's a lot of thinking on this. It's what you call epistocracy. And can you explain to the listeners what that is and why there's so much interest in it? Right. So if democracy means power of the people in Greek, uh, epistocracy, which it really should be epistemocracy, but I didn't coin that term. Uh, someone else did. Uh, it's supposed to mean power to the knowledgeable. So an epistocratic system would be any kind of representative political system in which in one way or another, by law, power is apportioned according to some sort of measurable and objective political knowledge. Uh, so there are lots of possible variations of this. Like the great uh, British philosopher and economist, John Stuart Mill, advocated a plural voting system in his pamphlet, Considerations and Representative Government, where he advocated everyone gets one vote, but maybe better educated people get additional votes. I personally don't think that's the right way to do it. The particular kind of epistocracy that I think is worth experimenting with is what I call enlightened preference voting. I had a different name for it in the book, but I should have called it that, uh, enlightened preference voting. 
And this is based upon a statistical method that economists and political scientists have been using for about 30 years. It's the way that if, if you ask me a question like, hey, how does the fact that somebody's white affect their vote on Brexit? Well, there's an, a method that we would use to determine that. And, and this is the method. If you also ask me, how does the fact that someone's informed affect it while controlling for everything else? We use the same method. What you do is you collect three sets of data from citizens. You find out who they are. What's their race, their gender, their religion, where they live, their income, their employment status, et cetera, because these things affect how people vote. The second thing you do is you find out what they want. Whatever it is we're voting on, you ask them their opinion on that. So whom do you want as your member of parliament, whatever it might be. And finally, you ask them to take a say basic quiz of 30 questions of just very basic political information. Can you identify the unemployment rate? Do you know something about some of the laws that have been passed recently? Do you know who your member of parliament is and what party they belong to? That sort of thing. When you have these three sets of data, you're then able to, using just basic statistics, and this is something that any newspaper has a bunch of people that can do this. Any university has hundreds of people that can do this kind of work. You can then estimate what the public would have wanted, a demographically identical public would have wanted if it had gotten a perfect score on the quiz. So it's a little bit like simulating a system in which we have exactly the same people in the country, but suddenly they've become perfectly informed. So we've been using this as a research method because this is how we know things like the fact if you're high income, how does that affect your view on free trade, for instance? But we could use this perhaps to run the government and then you use this to choose policy. So the idea is like, well, you know, we have wisdom out there in the crowds. What if we had a better way of extracting it than just by asking people to take a straight vote? And how would the policy differ from the policy, I don't know, the Biden administration will now implement or the Trump administration implemented before? Yeah, I think it's going to be even more radical than just, uh, you know, it might change who wins. I think it will change who runs. One of the persistent findings in political science is that the type of system you have, the number of political parties you have, the way that political parties are organized, the platforms they use, the way that they campaign is heavily determined by the voting system you have in place. So for example, in the United States, Republicans don't campaign for president in California because it's hopeless, which means that they just don't appeal to those people. There's a lot of appealing to voters in swing states because that determines the election. It's a very distorted and stupid process. And we should, you know, now we know better and we shouldn't have done it, but it's not likely to change. Similarly, uh, the reason that we have you know, typically two major political parties in a lot of English-speaking countries is because we use this first-past-the-post voting system. With, which yeah, Matt we've got it too. Yeah, exactly. Well, we got it from you, right? Uh, in which Matt yeah, I, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, well, no one knew better at the time. And that mathematically predicts you'll have two parties, which also means that you have more division and more animosity. So similarly, uh, if we had this kind of system, it's not really the right question to ask, like, would, would Trump have won or would Biden have won? Rather, what you'd see is, political parties would be organized in a different way. They'd campaign in a different way. They'd campaign at a higher level of information. They're trying to win power and they're going to try to win power based upon the system that you have. So I think what we'd have, generally speaking, is smarter, higher quality votes, uh, positions where the policies make sense in the long term rather than simply appealing to people's prejudices in the short term. Um, I think you might get the kind of, I don't want to say we'd be like Singapore in the sense of maybe curtailing civil liberties the way they do, but I think you'd get more of what you have in Singapore in terms of like high quality, competent government that has strong long-term benefits rather than being swayed by the prejudices and emotions of the day. Jason, one thing that struck me very much with your book is the first half when you're going through the failures of democracy, the ignorance, the partisanship, what you call hooliganism. 
the way it creates divisions where and us and them where over petty differences that that part of the book is packed with evidence yes you know when you move on to your ideas and other people's ideas for the future you just say oh well oh well you know I don't need to provide evidence here because no such system has existed yet. But I was thinking when I read it, if I was on the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party, I could say, well, I'd have no problem about publishing Jason's book in China. We, in the CCCP, have a kind of epistocracy. We have taken China away from the disaster of Maoism. We've made it rich. We've made it powerful. We're rational. What would you say to that? What would you say if a Chinese communist said, you know, we don't believe in communism as as ideology anymore? No one does. But, you know, we believe in rule by mandarins, rule by experts, rule by party committees. And we've done very well out of it. Yeah, good. So two points. One is, uh, you're right in a way that towards the end, there isn't a lot of evidence. It's largely speculative. And I'm I'm upfront about admitting that because... In a way, what I argue is not that we should do this tomorrow, but we should experiment with it and see if it works better on a small scale because, you know, we don't, we don't really know. We have some evidence from uh, using certain kinds of research methods, but it hasn't been tried on any kind of large scale in actual politics. So, you know, part of what the point of the book is to say, democracy is not justified for the reasons you think it is. If we can find a system that produces better results, we should feel free to use it. However, there's a question, an open question about whether any such system can be made to work. As for China, uh, it's true that they have a rule by elites. And this is where we have to be careful about epistocracy versus you know, just simple rule by elites. Every political system has an elite group of people who run things. And yeah. basically, even in dictatorships, the people who are running the dictatorship are better informed than the average person. It's always a cognitive elite in any kind of system. However, what China's missing, and this is why epistocracy, it doesn't really qualify as a proper epistocracy, is it doesn't have any kind of responsiveness to the people in the sense that the people can throw them out. There aren't contested elections. Uh, there is one party that will always rule, and everyone knows that, and things are determined internally to that power. So this is the sort of problem that we face, and we have to sort of split the difference. If you just have a band of elites, especially if it's a small band of elites who know that they will have power time and time again, they do have an incentive to run the country well for something called stationary bandit theory we don't need to get into, but uh, they do have some incentive to run the country well, but they basically can capture the country for their own private purposes and they run it for themselves. And that's the danger of having concentrated power in the, in the few. The danger of spreading power among the many is the problems of rational ignorance and rational irrationality, which means because individual voters in democracy have so little power, they don't have any incentive to be informed or to use their votes wisely. That's true of all of us. And then we end up uh, doing tribalistic politics and making stupid decisions. So we need to sort of split the difference between those in some way where we have an elite that does a lot of governing, but something forces them to take hold of the interests of the public as a whole. Democracy, representative democracy was meant to be that splitting the difference. However, it doesn't quite work as well as we would hope. So what would you say to demonstrators on the streets of Hong Kong or in Belarus or in Moscow? Would you say you shouldn't be demonstrating for democracy or that if you get democracy, you'll be disillusioned or that you should have democracy, but then do something else? Democracy would be an improvement over what they have. Uh, this, you know, I support the Hong Kong protesters. I'm glad that the UK is extending immigration visas to so many people from Hong Kong, and I hope that that works out. They're right that 
the system that we had in place in Hong Kong, you know, 20 years ago was a freer, better, more prosperous and likely to be more prosperous in the long term system than what they're going to have now. They're right to fight for that. It's good compared to the alternatives. I'm not a romanticist about democracy. I'm here to say it's very good compared to other things that we've tried, but it has flaws itself. So we should be open as a people to looking at alternatives that could improve upon what's wrong with it, but also be willing to admit that it does a lot of things very well, especially, and and this is a puzzle too, because democracy is often comes together with liberalism and just why that's so is something that's not really known. It's, it's, a question of like, when we think about why it's so good to live in democratic countries, is it because they're liberal or because they're democratic? Is it possible to have one without the other? We don't really know the answer to that. One of the examples you give very well in the book is about people's ideas on immigration and how irrational they are. As you said, people tend to vastly overestimate the number of immigrants in the country and then they tend to think they're all scrounging on welfare rather than working hard and so on. And you can see some kind of check in a democracy, some kind of rule by experts will be able to say that is complete nonsense. You're just talking rubbish. We as a, as a government can ignore that. However, what if those people's real motivation is just nationalist? You know, we don't care if immigrants bring benefits. We don't care if immigrants uh, are all hardworking and taxpaying. We want to assert our cultural identity, we want our identity politics, and we just don't like foreign people coming into and living in our in our country. And even though that makes us less rich, it makes us happier. How would you answer this, or how would the system you'll propose deal with kind of nativist feelings like that? Well, the, the nice thing about the nativist feelings is we have a, a pretty strong evidence about who has them and why they have them. Um, and actually, the UK has a, a great amount of data on this. Uh, so you're, you're a, ni- a very nice example. A persistent finding is that the people who are strongly nativist are also the people who aren't around the immigrants and are the least affected by them. Oh, that's certainly true. That's certainly true. Not in terms of income, it turns out. Uh, so you know, sometimes there's a story that people were pushing in 2016 where they said, oh, well, the Trump voters, they're the people who are hurt by globalization. And you, Jay Brennan, you were benefited by it, and that's why you vote that way. But then all these studies came out proving the opposite. In fact, they get a bigger income subsidy than I do from free trade and immigration and so on. But in fact, yeah, it's exposure to immigrants makes people pro-immigration and a lack of exposure to immigrants makes them anti-immigrant. So I think the story, the, the argument you just made, if I found something like the people who actually live among immigrants hate them and don't want them around, then we start getting to this question of, well, does that count as a legitimate interest? Are we really supposed to be holding to that? Don't people have some say over their life? And we get into all these complicated questions about who decides for whom. But when we find that the people who are the most bothered by the immigrants are the ones who never see them, then it's, you know, then it doesn't seem like a good story. If someone's like, there's too yeah. many damn Indian restaurants and they're ruining, you know, rural Nebraska. And it's like, you, you actually never get to see this food. You don't get to eat it. You're just, it's, it's really just a prejudice. So I think then, you know, increased immigration, empirically speaking, brings people more exposure to foreign cultures and others. When they meet these people and actually interact with them, they think that they're fine. It's just the fear of the other person that's based upon stereotypes rather than actual exposure. So I think this is this particular problem solves itself. Not in the US, where the constitution is just so hard to change. Uh, It's actually impossible to get constitutional change. But in, say, a European country or Britain or whatever, what small steps towards a better system, in your view, 
could be taken that would at least test some of the ideas as a going around. The currently fashionable thing to say in sort of liberal left circles in Britain is it, we need deliberative democracy, we leave citizens' glories, but another depressing bit of your book is, is it shows that that doesn't work very well either. What actual reforms could be done or could be proposed and then we could say, well, we'll see, does this produce better outcomes? This is something that could be done tomorrow, and it wouldn't cost that much, and it would probably pay for itself. Uh, it's not an idea original to me. It's something a, an economist named Brian Kaplan came up with. Call it National Voter Achievement Day. So here's what happens. Maybe a couple weeks before an election takes place or there's a referendum, you have a free and open test that anyone can take. It doesn't determine whether you get to vote or not. It doesn't affect your vote in the future. All it is is a quiz of just basic political information. Um, and inter- we can talk about who gets to decide what's on that quiz. But you come in, you show up at the at a government office, you take this test. And then if you get, say, a 90% to 100% on it, they give you, I don't know, an 800-pound tax credit. If you get between an 80 to a 90%, they give you, say, a 300-pound tax credit. If you get 70 to 80%, they give you a 100-pound tax credit. And less than 70%, you get nothing. It's just free money for knowing stuff. You tell people you're going to do this, and you give them a wide list of possible questions that might be on the test. You basically pay voters to be informed, to just know the basics, to know which party's in power, to know some things that have happened, to know to know like some statistics that might be relevant to their decision. And the reason this might be worth doing is because ignorance is an incentive problem. Voters aren't stupid. People are pretty good at leading their own lives. I don't think it's a stupidity issue. It's a lack of reason to be informed. Yeah. Right? So as I like to put it, like if I told you that I'm going to give you a test on the contents of the novel War and Peace next week, and if you get a 90% on it, I'm going to give you a million pounds. Well, you would memorize, you'd read it, and you'd memorize that book. Yeah. But if I told you that I'm going to give you a test on the contents of War and Peace, and then if you get a good score on it, I'll give you a one in 60 million chance of winning a million pounds, you wouldn't bother. And that's effectively yeah. what's happening with voting. Voters don't know things because the chance that their vote will make a difference is so astronomically low. It's not worth it to them to invest in that knowledge. And also, Jason, as you've already mentioned, in systems like the American and British system, unless you live in the marginal seat or swing state, there's probably no point in voting at all. Yeah, that's right. So if your vote definitely matters more, say, in Germany than it does in the UK or the US. So what this idea of like, just pay people to know things, give them a free test and pay them if they get a good answer, if they, if they're, uh, if they score highly on it, you're now trying to modify the incentives that voters face and you're rewarding them for being well-informed. This is really an investment in public knowledge. It would be a stronger, it would be cheaper and it would be more effective than say, increasing the amount of civics education in public education. Because frankly, and I hate to say this because I'm an educator, it doesn't work. Oh, it's another thing that doesn't work, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't work. Uh, they forget almost everything after six months, and it's because of rational ignorance. So to combat the problems of rational ignorance, make it rational to be informed. Well, I think that's a great idea, actually. I think it would be wonderful, and, and it could probably take off. Though, looking at our political parties in Britain, anyone I can't really imagine any of them being bold enough to, uh, to take it. Although, when you talk to politicians privately, I doubt they'll have much problem with you know, the sections of your book and other people's books describing voter ignorance, they'll say, yeah, yeah, or they'll probably say you don't even know the half of it, Jason. Well, that has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. We now come to my favourite part of the show, where I have to read out my corporate propaganda, which says the bunker is on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. On Tuesday, there's a bonus long edition. And finally, I, I get to describe which something young people won't understand. This is something called Patreon, which is based on the quaint idea that people actually pay money to journalists and broadcasters for 
their work. And I know if you weren't an adult in the 20th century, you probably won't remember this, but I'd like you to think of people like Ian Dunt and Alex Andreu and Naomi Smith and Dory. And, you know, do you actually want them to starve? If you don't, you must go onto Patreon now and give them money. If you do, shame on you. And the only way you can make amends for your vile thought is by going onto Patreon and giving them money too. While you search for your checkbooks and credit cards, all it means for me to say is goodbye and thank you for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Nick Cohen and produced by the starving artists Andrew Harrison, Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.